0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer.
1: This week on Quick to Listen, we are going to talk about Apple TV show Ted Lasso. If you have not watched the show... Alas, this episode may not be for you. If you are still making it through the first or second season, major spoilers abound. We suggest you save it until you finish it. And for everyone else, welcome. We are so excited to nerd out on this show today. So let's get into where last week's season finale left off. Last week's episode ended with an image of Nate. Nate. The once Kitman, recently promoted Greyhounds assistant coach, is not wearing Richmond attire as we see him lead team exercises on the pitch. Instead, he's an in all-black staring at the camera as we realize he's the head coach of West Ham United, a team recently purchased by season one nemesis Rupert. Just minutes before, we've watched Nate verbally berate Ted during halftime in a game that could put Richmond back in the Premier League. I worked so hard trying to get your attention back, to prove myself to you, to make you like me again. But the more I did, the less you cared. I think you're a joke. Without me, we wouldn't have won a single match, and they would have shipped you back to Kansas, where you belong with your son. That is me reading a moderately edited version of Nate's tirade against Ted. (laughs) Nate's arc from neglected staff member to dismissive and arrogant coach who struggles with self-loathing and insecurity is just one of the themes we wanted to discuss today. But a show known for the kindness and forgiveness of its characters also had much to say this year about toxic masculinity and father and son relationships. This program has also had much to say about actions and consequences, except there are points that we feel there are a few oversights here on this part this season. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today.
2: And I'm Ted Olson, I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today.
1: So, Ted, I know that you and I have lots of feelings about the show. Let's start by talking about how we felt about the finale.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do have lots of thoughts about the show, you know, and I I probably should start off by saying it's not a show, but it's not a show that I I really like go around recommending to, you know, friends and and colleagues at CT. It's not, you know, like Game of Thrones or some really problematic show with a lot of, you know, rape scenes and stuff like that. But it is the kind of show that has enough F-bombs in it and that kind of thing that it starts putting F-bombs into my thinking like one of the major themes of the show is that you know one one character pretty much only speaks in in green right. bombs right um right Roy can and you know the sex is you know again I I have, I have to applaud you know um, how <laughs> that there's a remarkable lack of nudity in the show but there's yeah, it's, the sex is I'm like golly you know it's a little it's a it's a little over the top goofy uh not a show in that sense that I would want to watch with my mom or my kids in that sense, right? It's all that to say, you know, when we've talked about covering it in CT, I'm like, well, we got to be, we got to be clear. This is not a show that we're like recommending, but it does have some interesting things to say. And it's certainly a cultural touch point. Like people have stronger feelings about Ted Lasso than they do about most things and most shows shared cultural dialogue on this thing. The thing about the finale, because you asked me about the finale, is, you know, by the time I'd gotten to the finale, I'm like, what is this show? Because it just doesn't seem like a normal show. People do not act like they do in normal life. The conversation's weird. No one has consequences for their actions. It's a little bit preachy at times. It's got this relentless optimism that has been talked about tons and tons and tons. By the time I got to season, the end of season two, I was like, I think maybe this show is just more viewed through the lens of Fable, perhaps. You know, especially when you throw in this season's episodes about Christmas episode, which was just super weird. And the two kind of bonus episodes they threw in because Apple bought two extra episodes than,
1: than includes the, the Christmas uh, pre- episode,
2: Right. It includes the Christmas episode and then the uh, Coach uh, Beard episode. You know, they were weird. And I was like, yeah, but they, they're <laughs> weird in a way that is... It has this kind of like almost magical realism aspect to it. Not even magical realism. I think Fable is probably the best. Like it's like story time aspect. And I'm like, okay, so here you have certainly a little bit of a cliffhanger for season three. But it's also, it's like the adult version of teenage shows that I grew up with on TV, the movie of the week, where it's like clear morals. And the moral of the story is, or it's like, you know, don't, you know, don't be like Jim. Don't, don't do drugs, kids. That kind of thing. But I did think like, oh, there are consequences for things that they've just kind of waited to have consequences until this episode. So I had kind of been like, okay, I guess no one's going to have any consequences for any of their actions. Lots to talk about, though. I'm here to talk to our guest about it. Before we do that, what's your gut check about the the finale?
1: One of the things that I did not expect on the finale, I, I will say that I was not surprised to see that Nate, to quote other people, turn full dark side but I was surprised that they decided to show Keeley launching her own business or getting the funds to do that and how she navigates that with Rebecca as almost a really interesting foil and juxtaposition to what was happening with Nate. There's almost a sense of, here's another way that the story could have turned out. And I think that's actually something that's going to make our discussion today richer when we talk about it, because there are questions that I had about, you know, was Nate's fate inevitable, not necessarily from a writer point of view, from a writer point of view, it definitely wasn't inevitable. I believe that Nick Muhammad has talked about the way, the clues that the writers introduced in season one to kind of give you a sense of where Nate was and the extent that he did not change over the course of season one or the ways that he did and did not. But I think what is interesting is looking at, yeah, Keely and Rebecca's alternative way that they handled that. As far as everything else goes, I mean, I don't I don't know if I need to comment on every single storyline except I will join everyone else in saying the Keely and Roy arc did not really wrap up that well or wrap up at all, period. I don't understand what they tried to do there. And I did kind of appreciate the last minute will he or won't he drama with Sam with regards to him deciding whether or not he was going to leave Richmond. What, the part that I get, think I did appreciate was his decision at the end that he was going to open a Nigerian restaurant, as opposed to just him deciding to stay, but not because of Rebecca, which is something else we can get into on the show. Overall, though, I thought it was a pretty solid episode, and I have a lot of respect for shows that I feel like are willing to take beloved characters and do really risky things with them. So props to Ted Lasso for that. Ted, who's our guest to discuss all this today.
2: Our guest is Mary Beth Baggett. Mary Beth Baggett is professor of English and cultural apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She's also associate editor for Christ and Pop Culture. Her 2019 book, Morals of the Story, received a CT Award of Merit in our book awards that year. And she is working on a book about the philosophy of Ted Lasso with her husband, who is also at Houston Baptist. We had heard... That she was thinking about it, and we were like, "Well, she has thoughts about Ted Lassa. We want to talk to her." So, Mary Beth, welcome to Quick to Listen.
3: Thank you so much for having me. And I definitely have thoughts, and I feel like I have even more listening to that gut check from both of you. I'm, I'm so excited about this. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, so Mary Beth, so much to talk about, but one of the big things that Ted and I really want to get into today is redemption. So because you are someone who has thought a lot about this how do christians think about redemption how do we define it and how does the show define it
3: that's a fantastic question and my interest in this with storytelling and redemptive arcs way predates Ted Lasso it's actually a, a thing that i think about quite often when i when i read stories and i probably um, <laughs> give a little too much and look for redemption, <laughs> redemptive moments um, wherever I can find them. But what I um, understand that to be in terms of storytelling would obviously not attain to a salvific level. I mean, that's you know clearly redemption of the world and Christ's redemption of the cosmos through his crucifixion resurrection. That's the ultimate. But I do think In stories, and there's something about the human condition where Christian, non Christians alike, just being made in God's image, creatures in this fallen world, we long for it. We want to get beyond, not just cover over or look past, but to actually. Go in and 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 draw out something good, or, or, or create something good. So like sort of a new creation, and I and I do think that you know has happened in, in several different places in Ted Lasso, and you almost have the anti <laughs> redemption, or maybe a hope for redemption for Nate. I think the big thing for season one would be with Rebecca and Ted. And, you know, those who have watched the show, you learn in the first episode that Rebecca has brought in this hapless, you know, seemingly hapless. Of course, we learn more about Ted as the show goes on and he's much more than his appearance. But this person... To come in and to completely set him up to fail, having nothing to do with Ted Lasso himself, she doesn't know him, but it's much more out of revenge for her ex-husband who has really t- treated her I mean, terribly, terribly. And so we learn in the first episode that he's brought there um, and he's excited to be there about the possibilities, but she's brought him there to, to basically to fail. And the whole season one, I know that you go almost through the entire season before that is rectified. And, and Ted really does <laughs> win her over. When the moment happens and she confesses, what she has done, I i mean, I was bawling. <laughs> I mean, it's very, very moving because Ted immediately forgives her. He doesn't hold these, you know, you need to meet the standard. You need to do this this work. He, he accepts it and offers her that grace. And it's, again, a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I would say that that's a moment of redemption that is done well.
2: Had a little bit of a different reaction to the scene. To really have the the scene you mentioned about Ted, Ted forgiving Rebecca, and it's a it's an issue I have a little bit in kind of American society right now, which is grace still needs to reckon with the gravity of sin and forgive it in that context. So my question, watching that scene, is was Ted Lasso's quickness to forgive and move on part of his passion? to deal with people as individuals and make everyone a little bit better person? Or was it part of what season two got into, which was Ted Lasso sometimes using those kinds of opportunities as a way to not deal with stuff, right? His his optimism is both catchy and inspirational, but it also can be a defense mechanism to not deal with his own stuff and not deal with the reality of the situation. I don't know. I felt that, I felt that seemed to be a little bit more ambiguous.
3: Ted comes off extremely superficially and yes, yes, very optimistic. And there seems to be part of that that has really gotten to his wife, that he does do this optimism almost yeah, as a way to wave things away. With regards to Rebecca, I might suggest it's a little bit different. And here's sort of how. There are Many moments with Rebecca, and especially when Rupert is there, the auction scene, when he's leaving, when Rupert's leaving and Ted and Rebecca are out there on the steps. Also, of course, the dart scene, which I think is just brilliant. (laughs) I, I love that. Where Ted, yes, has a very optimistic look on this world, on life, on people, But he sees, I think he sees very clearly who Rupert is. And I think there's certainly a sympathy toward Rebecca in his seeing who Rupert is. But I think it's even more than that. I think he sees something about the damage that Rupert has done to Rebecca and can really encourage her. That scene outside of the auction where Rupert is leaving. And he's so awful during that whole thing. I wonder about redemption of Rupert, if that's possible within the confines of the show. But Ted says something very quickly to Rebecca, thing along the lines of, I see who he is, or you're not the only one who sees who he is, or something like that. I can't remember the exact language, but it's very quick. And it's very confirming of Rebecca that this is not her fault, that She, again, deserved better. And there's that. And then, of course, the dart scene, which is certainly him standing up for Rebecca, but I think really putting Rupert in his place. But I think in a way, my sense is in a way that's honorable and good, just showing Rupert that he doesn't have it all figured out. So I I would put the scene with Rebecca and forgiveness within that arc. Yes, obviously, Ted himself has issues with avoidance, etc. I think the ground was primed for that forgiveness of Rebecca well before the embrace. That, That would be my reading.
1: One of the things that we learn in season two is that when Ted is talking to Sharon, he basically says that one of the reactions he had to his father's suicide was kind of being aware or empathetic to the fact that people may have a larger context or backstory that they may not be bringing to the particular moment that they're in. And I do think what you're showing right here is in season one, when Rebecca is telling him what happens, he's stitching together some of that larger arc there. This Rebecca confession is then echoed in the second season when she comes over to him and lets him know that she and Sam have had a relationship. and Ted in my mind, really (laughs) was way too quick to dismiss what was happening there and to approach it with a very laissez-faire attitude. So I am wondering to, to what extent does Ted's ability to kind of see everyone's larger context and to try to show empathy in that way ever keep him from seeing what's exactly in front of him and what harm that might be causing?
3: This is definitely one of the criticisms that I would have of the show. But this is a show that is really trying to affirm the dignity of people, really highlight the value of people. Jason Sudeikis has said that he tried to model Ted Lasso off of Mr. Rogers. And of course, Mr. Rogers is known so much for that and promoting the value of human beings and 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 you do see that a lot in the show and and perhaps I'm a little more sympathetic to some of the things or maybe give a little more forgiving myself <laughs> of of some of the things that maybe seem a little superficial it resonates with people i think for a reason and that seems to be one of the reasons that human beings are valuable and meaningful the way that they've handled sex especially in season 2 which has gotten what much more it's much more over the top that funeral episode i think was way off it was vulgar sex was not presented as something that's you know relational and about affirming sort of productive. There was no kind of recognition of, you know, possibilities of pregnancy or or anything like that. Ted's, I know that he's the same character I was just talking about before. And obviously this is between him and Rebecca, but Ted's quick affirmation of Sam and Rebecca being together seemed to me part and parcel of the show's broader embrace of just, you know, sexual almost free for all. But again, I think that that's deeply inconsistent with their saying that human beings are valuable because in this other instance, it really is suggestive of human beings are there for my own pleasure. And of course, that was the deep wrong and deep hurt against Rebecca. And and in that funeral episode, it's also discussed that her father had been unfaithful to her mother. And so I don't think that the show handles this well. I think that it Undermines in some ways some of the other things that are good about it. You know, it is the same character, so you probably do need to figure out a way that those two things go hand in hand. The earlier confession and confiding in this later one, I feel like that was a mistake. <laughs> and that's maybe the way that I would sort of discuss it and handle it.
2: Let me run one of my theories by you because it, it does connect to this question about, you know, the way in which that it handled that church scene. And the way it handled, there's a scene, I think it's an early in season two, where, well, something about, there's a comment about prayer, you know, Ted Lasso makes some kind of like quick comment about like, which God would we pray to, what if we pray to the wrong one, you know, and, you know, we make whatever God mad and blah, 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 blah. There's kind of like these comments about like, hey, 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 we're not a religion show. We're not a, re- we're not, we're not a religious, we're not doing a religious thing here. Because the show has had all this attention is like, oh, you know, it's kind of there's a lot of freshness and like be, you know, be nice. And there's a kind of a certain kind of morality. And honestly, like, I still think, I still think the show is kind of fable or morality play in some way. They keep coming back to that almost as like a, um, don't worry, don't worry. We're not, you know, we're preachy, but we're not trying to be actually preachy, preachy. It was almost like an assurance, you know, and I, I thought kind of some of the the extent to which it includes profanity in it. I'm like, is. Are they like, is it almost there as a reassurance that like, or a way for them to be preachy if they can throw in enough things that make it seem not directly preachy?
3: That, that's exactly the way that I see it. Where in this moment of vitriol and I think a lot of disdain seems to be the order of the day in some places, you have this relationships and love and, you know, I'm not going to be prideful, you know. Ted presents Himself as Extremely Humble, very countercultural on that side. But then you have this other side that is lock and step. You know, we had talked about the sexual ethics of the show, but I think too with religion. Now it does, I mean, it hints at it here and there, at least the fact that there is maybe the possibility of a spiritual realm is at least possible, you know, even in that misguided statement I at least there's something there why' it's, it's hard to say I do think probably the result is that it's very clear yes, there's this bubbly character but there's also all this other stuff maybe even shows him in this world of it's not completely utopian or something along those lines but I do think it also, can make it more palatable, <laughs> uh, you know, even even if he modeled his character after Mr. Rogers, it's not Mr. Rogers' show on Apple TV. Maybe it serves a purpose, too, in terms of really underscoring how different Ted is as well to be in that environment, especially against somebody like Roy Kent.
1: I wanted to return back to our discussion of Rebecca and Sam. And I think this feeds into the conversation that we're having too about the way that the show explores morality and to the extent that it's preachy or not. One of the dynamics that is extremely present and at least at the beginning seems to be acknowledged is the fact that Rebecca is the owner of the team, that Sam is a player and that there's a more than 20 year gap between those two characters. I, one, found it troubling just as a viewer to not see any of those issues later on explored. In fact, when Rebecca decides to end things with Sam, this is not given as a reason for why this has ended. But what I also found even more interesting was I read a number of show recaps during the past couple episodes. When I was watching them, Is how much the audience or these reviewers seemed hungry for (laughs) <laughs> something that would critique that or something that seemed self-aware about what was happening with that. And that many people seem to feel very unsatisfied by the fact that the show did not address this or bring this into the conflict. For you, Mary Beth, what would you have liked to see the show explore? I mean, do you think that this is a storyline that they should not have considered at all? Or is it just disappointing because they didn't ask deeper questions out of the characters?
3: I don't understand how it fits. So I I guess I would have preferred that they didn't even enter into it because it it just seems to really raise questions that they seem completely (laughs) unwilling to answer. One thing I've sort of rolled around in my head is that the show does seem very much about female empowerment. You know, Keely, I think is a, a key figure with this. Of course, Rebecca trying to figure out a way to... Get past the mistreatment. So it's almost that, like, me too, and now what? You know, what's sort of the response to that kind of, you know, position that women have held in many circles, quite broadly, pushed to the margins, not having much cultural capital. It seems to me that the way that sex is handled, because often it is. Women initiating about, you know, they, they do seem to emphasize, you know, female pleasure. Um, and I think that the Sam storyline maybe could see, be seen in the same sort of vein of this. Let's present a world where females actually, where women actually do kind of come out on top. Again, this seems to me a real miss because I don't think a correction to an injustice like that is to reverse, you know, victim, victimizer, and, you know, now have Rebecca in the position of power over, you know, one of her players. I know Sam's such a likable character, and and maybe that was some of the thinking behind the writers. I I really honestly don't know. I struggle to figure it out because I just think that they opened a can of worms that they (laughs) have no interest in (laughs) dealing with. I think really connected to that, she was seeing someone, again, pretty much just for the sex. So you wonder, like, how does Sam fit into this? Because she was also talking to him through that anonymous app and didn't know it was him. So like what was she looking for with him? But then they immediately jump into bed. And, and especially without working through, you know, what does any of this mean? I, I just found it a real problematic feature and I kind of just wish it would go away. <laughs> and and yeah, how to handle it, how to, how to understand it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church law and tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today.
3: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
2: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're and
3: they're
2: going on on based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November. It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
0: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world
1: is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home.
3: But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
2: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
1: I really want to talk about Nate, who is the focus of the finale and is someone that... I think is quietly making us uncomfortable throughout season two. For most of us who are watching the show, especially for Christians, I think we would have watched how Ted interacted with Nate in season one in particular and observed that feels like very Christ-like the way that Ted would go about acknowledging Nate or looking for ways to make Nate's voice more powerful on the team and trying to figure out the bullying situation. However, of course, Nate is revealed in season two as being himself a bully, specifically with Will, his replacement with Colin, one of the players. And then we watch him betray Ted in many ways. How does Nate's arc challenge how we Christians understand love and kind of see what love looks like?
3: First of all, I think love is a risk. Love is, it's not a guaranteed outcome. C.S. Lewis has that quote. I think it's from The Four Loves where he says, love anything. And, you know, you risk your heart being broken. You risk loss. You risk whatever. Somebody can betray you. Somebody can. I mean, even the fact that Nate was able to betray Ted was because Ted had opened up to him. So I think remembering that love is a risk. It's not a calculation is an important thing. The second thing, and I suppose it's related, is that love can be resisted. And Nate, basically, is, he's offered a gift from Ted. And clearly, we see that all throughout season one, the gifts that Ted offered him. Because Ted saw in Nate, he saw something in Nate that, what I mean, he is clearly gifted as a coach he offers him this gift and he is trying to nurture him and, and help him reach his potential. But Nate obviously takes it in a different way. And I think his rejection of Ted's love, Ted's offer and, and becoming more prideful, becoming it's, it's almost like he's trying to build up his ego in the wake of his father's complete apathy towards him. You, you see that in that one episode where He's trying to set up the anniversary dinner for his mother and father and the father just can't, you know, is constantly sniping at him. And there's this desire for appreciation. I know we can read that another way where Nate's just so absolutely needy and he's completely insatiable because that's what he unloads on Ted in the last episode of you weren't there for me and this and that. Psychology is not my background, but I might read that as projection where Ted is sort of a stand-in for a safe stand-in for his father. Nate had had so many opportunities and he has seen barriers melted. He has seen Jamie, for example, receive Roy's love. I mean, that hug after Jamie's father berates him is, I mean, wow, that one—that might be, for me, that might be the most powerful moment. And he looks at that and he doesn't receive it. Uh, it seems like more pride is built up or something. And that's sort of the way that I understand the Nate situation So far, I'm hopeful, of course, for his sort of redemption, restoration, reconciliation. It's not going to be as easy as Rebecca's, though, obviously. (laughs) Seeing him get to that point where he can actually acknowledge that he's done something wrong, is that's hard to see right now.
2: You know, not to be like the Bible thumper guy, the Bible verse that came to mind in that scene, and I'm talking about the the scene where Nate berates Ted, not the Nate scene, was that... (laughs) was Paul talking about where the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, but to the one where an aroma that brings death, uh, to the other an aroma that brings life. Ted Lasso's actions of uh, attempting to, to, you know, he gives a lot of gifts, right? And there's a lot of receiving of, of gift. There's a lot of receiving of grace. There's a lot of receiving of mercy in the show. And what you hear from Nate is very much entitlement. I deserve, I deserve. And that's the, the theme of that, of his speech to Lasso is, I deserve this. You don't know what you're doing. I'm actually good at this. That might be interesting to explore. You know, we often talk about mercy and grace as being something that is un- undeserved. Tell me about where you see Ted Lasso is talking about when grace and mercy are kind of deserved or they are somewhat deserved. So things that are gifted, Versus things that are earned.
3: I guess the question is, what is it that Nate deserves? Because yes, maybe he does deserve to be a head coach, but kind of think about where he originally was at the beginning of the series. And and he was, you know, he was the kit guy, right? And there's almost, yes, again, you can make that argument. He, he is really skilled, really gifted. It also raises questions of what a coach is. Is it simply about winning or is it about also team unity? This is a big question that the series explores because Nate certainly won't be good at that. And especially not with someone like Rupert being the owner of the team, right? That that, <laughs> that team doesn't seem to bode very well for, you know, any kind of camaraderie, yeah, anything positive like that. So, so yes, on one hand, he may deserve something. What exactly is that? And he's not recognizing maybe where his shortfall is, that there are things, a coaching and, and any kind of sport would be a team effort. He clearly has no interest in that whatsoever. Again, he may be good, but it doesn't mean that he's necessarily really gotten it, you know, or really where he should be to really be a successful coach. Ted clearly is sort of the clownish and, you know, he's really the one that's serious. And and
2: And given the stuff that Ted says, he should be home with his son right?
3: Right. The, the, and, and Oh, that is, oh, the fact that he goes there, I, I think that was really cruel. I mean, everybody has a vulnerability. I do think the show probably could have shown a little bit more justification of why he was there as opposed to with his son. But it kind of shows, I think, Nate's cruelty by that point. So it was more about Nate's attempt to overcome that shame. We do... Yeah, kind of see that in Nate of um, his father has, has not really given him the due that he – I mean, you know, children do deserve that recognition from their parents of you are valuable, you matter. And you can just tell that maybe his mother has offered that to him, but his father has given him none of it, none of it. And he's, And he's longing for it so desperately, and it's almost like he's trying to build up what he – never got and and these are obviously wrong ways to do it and I'm not trying to justify Nate at all. I mean it, he he has been given a choice and he has been given ways to heal and he has not taken them, not taken them and and really just relied on his own devices that are are just hideous. I
1: I actually think that the character of Nate is one that is very challenging for all of us to know how to love correctly and to be in relationship with. So obviously you've spent lots of time in philosophical world or in the world of philosophy and in scripture as well. What type of guidance are we seeing there with how to be in relationship with someone who is deeply self-loathing and very insecure?
3: This is a really, I think, pressing question. There are relationships, obviously a boundaries kind of question, I think. And there are relationships that you can and and sadly sometimes must disengage from. And and I don't think it's unloving whatsoever to do that. But if that person has made it so clear that they do not wish you well, they actually wish you ill. Then it's not respectful to yourself. It's not even respectful to them to give you them those opportunities because that's just giving them an outlet for, I mean, frankly, sin. And I think there are times to disengage. There are more difficult situations, uh, say a family member, where you sort of have to be in relationship with them. And I think it takes a lot of prayer, a lot of outside support, a lot of counseling to get the best. There is a way to insist on truth, not surrender to the mistreatment and still be open to the person. Ted probably is hopeful that Nate will return to the full. I mean, maybe not like literally come back to the team, but I'm sure he's heartbroken over this. We didn't see his reaction. We just saw Nate's, but you can just imagine that this was a heartbreaking thing for him. I mean, you see earlier in the season where Ted does welcome Jamie back into the team after, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems. I think he probably has that same hope that Nate can get to some of those Obviously, again, Nate, I think, is a harder case because he's farther gone, but Ted would be open to that. And I think we should be sort of having a stance of openness toward reconciliation, but not at the expense of, and this, I think, goes back to the earlier question of what sort of forgiveness and redemption looks like, not at the expense of truth and not at the expense of really dealing with the issue, like really facing it. We'll see whether or not the show how they handle it, what they do with it. I hope that they try to take it on. I I think without Christian resources, it's going to be very, very, very difficult because again, we have, that's so central to Christianity, the restoration and, and redemption. I mean, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the ultimate redemption, really overcoming death and sin. Nate is obviously not beyond that reach, but whether or not he's beyond the reach of the shows, writers, and characters, I think, remains to be seen.
1: Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for discussing Ted Lasso at length with us today. For people who have comments, questions, obviously beef with our takes about Ted Lasso, you can send us an email. We are at podcast at com, and we invite you to share with us how you felt about Ted Lasso season two. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, and it's our opportunity to get to relay feedback that you all have sent to us. So the first one we are going to read is from Michelle Lopez. Hello, I've been listening to Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Cultivated, Quick to Listen, and now Viral Jesus. I have to say thank you for bringing authentic, open, honest media for those of us that begin to wonder and wander because of church harm and sadness due to programs instead of gospel truth. I find myself in a fruitful valley these past 14 years. Loving Jesus, teaching Bible to junior high girls, attending and serving at a church, and yet longing for a church to call home. I am encouraged after each lesson in some way or another, praying to walk away a joyful ambassador for Christ because he is worthy at all times. Thank you for finding interesting people to talk to and are finding people that will tastefully talk about things that need to be brought to light. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to a number of CT podcasts. And we're very grateful to
2: hear that these are encouraging you. Next letter, I just listened to your podcast about drones and war. I wish that you'd been able to push this interview further, especially on the point of whether drones really are just a blanket morally better option for war. There was a brief discussion about the thought that war might be better when done hand-to-hand, but it seemed pretty quickly dismissed by your guest, and there was no further discussion of the topic. Especially in light of the epidemic of PTSD in the military, And the fact that it is more prevalent among drone operators than any other part of the military, I wish you had posted this further. Godspeed, Jason Stanley, Indiana. One thing about Jason's letter. So the studies that I found online do indicate that drone pilots, especially in the U.S., do suffer PSD. It is a little bit lower than military personnel returning from deployment. The one study I found found 4.3% Air Force drone operators experiencing moderate to severe PTSD versus 10 and 18%. Of deployed folks, you know, that's still PTSD. I think it is surprising to some folks that drone operators do experience PTSD. I found our guest response actually pretty interesting on that about the relative safety in terms of civilian casualties. One thing you might want to look at is a piece we did years ago that I I believe we referenced in that episode called is... uh, Killing by Remote Control, I believe was the title. It's a kind of a roundup of a few different folks' opinion. And that, and that gets into that question a little bit more directly. One thing that I found helpful in that older article was the reminder that and in many ways, war is always done by remote control, if you consider it in terms of the people who decide to go to war. Military leaders, heads of state, all those kinds of things, they are doing it by remote control, whether it's through drone planes or through warriors but they are <laughs> they are in offices and they are not on uh, necessarily personally at risk that comment has always stuck with me after that article
1: next letter this is from john brundage as i was listening to your episode about the view of muslims by evangelicals after 911 it brought to mind my experiences with 911 and subsequent dealings with muslims Before 9-11, I had no dealings with Muslims at all. I had very little personal dealings with any Muslims until 2015 when I was going to college with someone from Iran. That personal experience with a refugee and multiple refugees after that had me look more in-depth into scripture. I've heard it portrayed that Islam is a religion of peace and that the terrorists are extremists. I've also heard it portrayed that the terrorists are not extremists but truly following the Quran and that peaceful Muslims are not following the Quran. I've heard this from Muslims and non-Muslims alike, which makes it difficult to know which one is accurate. I have not had the time to try to find out for myself. What I have learned is that Jesus calls us to love all people. Thank you for listening to my story.
2: Thank you for sharing, John. Thanks, John. Next one's from Jolene Cryer. Dear Morgan, Ted, and Dominic Hernandez, who is our guest, I'm writing with deepest gratitude for your time and thoughtfulness in a discussion of the Quick to Listen podcast, Wisdom, Folly, and Taking Ivermectin to Treat COVID-19. I am a Christian and have been all my life. This last year has been extremely challenging on so many levels, but particularly on a spiritual and relational front. My husband is an epidemiologist and works at Mayo Health Systems. Over the last year, we've experienced grief as our church ignored his recommendations for safe fellowship at the beginning of the pandemic and great concern for the health of our community in general. What's most heartbreaking, however, is the fracturing that has occurred within my own family as my mother is an anti vaxxer and anti masker. She considers herself to be part of the remnant, and believes that she has been given special knowledge that we are not privy to. She has told me, quote, I just need to trust her. But this is in direct conflict to my trust in my husband, as an expert in the field with over twenty years of experience, as well as my role as a wife in biblical submission and union. At this time, due to several factors, I, I no longer feel that she and my father are safe to entrust our children to, as she has no control over the things she says, and many of them are very damaging. So, your podcast was extremely encouraging to me as I'm trying to establish boundaries with her with honor. I will be re- reading and rereading Proverbs, as well as other passages, as I and we are navigating our current season within our community and family relationships. I've been so baffled by some of the response I'm encountering by other Christians, and I've often cried to my husband that I'm just unsure while I am desperately seeking God and desperately concerned for public health in our community. Why I feel I must have missed the memo or special insight from God in the script on how to respond as a Christian. I felt very ostracized from my Christian community and friends. Maybe some of this is just my perception, but I have felt very alone at this time. I cannot express the encouragement I felt as I listened to your podcast last night and again today. Thank you so much for putting it out there. Jolene this is a very encouraging letter we were very sorry to read to read this letter you're in our prayers uh, we're, we're glad we could provide some encouragement it is also helpful to, to hear different people's experience because Morgan I don't know how it's how it's been for you I I'm, I'm blessed to be in a church that it has been fairly of one mind on these questions and and, and in a family that is fairly in of one mind on, on these questions I'm we're so tired of wearing a mask to church but I I, I keep doing it it's helpful to hear from people who are just like in deep pain, emotional turmoil over it.
1: All right. This is from Rachel who is living in Madison. Hi, Morgan and Ted. I found the podcast sometime in the last year or so when I was intentionally searching for more podcasts with the traditionally grounded conversations and thoughts to balance the several podcasts in my feed that ask questions and quote, deconstruct some of the norms of the Christian faith. It has proven to be just that a steady ground to stand on and return to that also acknowledges the nuance and complexities of living out our faith in today's world. One of the most recent episodes about ivermectin, but not really about ivermectin, was just an excellent example of how you guys so thoughtfully balanced the news cycle with deeper questions. More than once in the last several months, listening to your conversations has made me realize how many important questions lie beneath the surface of our current struggles in America and the church. I admit I initially dismissed this particular episode because the ivermectin debacle made me roll my eyes and I thought Proverbs sounded too boring to actually be applicable here. But I was wrong. You both asked excellent questions and made connections between current events and the Bible that hadn't even crossed my mind. I really appreciated the perspective from Professor Hernandez and I'm not sure I'll ever read Proverbs the same way again. Thanks for your work, for not shying away from difficult topics or conversations and for holding those conversations with honesty and nuance while seeking to live out the Christian life as
2: faithfully as possible.
1: What a great letter.
2: Oh, that is nice. That is nice. And now for uh, a slightly different perspective. Uh, Hello, I've been a weekly listener of Quick to Listen for around a year now. And I wanted to express my disappointment to you over the wisdom, folly, and ivermectin episode. For starters, the episode came across as condescending toward anyone seeking alternative medical treatment or preventative care for COVID-19. The name of the episode itself, as well as the beginning discussion on ivermectin, imply pretty strongly that those who take the drug are, well, fools. So much so, there didn't appear to be any doubt, debate, or discussion as to why people would be driven to consider ivermectin in the first place. I don't want this email to be too long, so I'll just end now with saying that I think CT and Quick to Listen should sit and listen longer to the stories and rationale of people seeking ivermectin before presuming that they're acting foolishly. Overall, I thought the tone and implications presented at the podcast did not live up to CTs or Quick to Listen's mission and purpose of going beyond hashtags and hot takes to talk about a major cultural event. I hope this blesses you. BF. Yeah, dude, I hear that. Actually, that was a concern I had going into the episode. I did try to start with that episode uh, talking about some of the reasons why it's not crazy to look at ivermectin or some of the studies and the attention that had been given both in the mainstream medical community and in articles about why ivermectin is not, not crazy. There were reasons why people might look at ivermectin. I guess what we did have some dismissive tone about people deciding for themselves to take ivermectin in the form of animal medication, which in you know, a number of uh, media reports <laughs> seem to be true of people uh, seeking out ivermectin in in non-medical ways, especially veterinary ivermectin. We did not look to uh, say folks are foolish for looking for at alternative medical treatment. But the whole question in it is, what is wisdom and what is folly when we are dealing with medical stuff? And so if you felt disparaged by that podcast, we uh, sorry about that. I still think it's probably foolish to seek out veterinary ivermectin. But as I tried to indicate at the beginning part of the episode, to look at ivermectin as a possibility, there were there were good reasons for that
1: all right. Our last letter is from John Swanson. Hi, Morgan and Ted. You gave me a laugh the other day while running and listening to the Proverbs podcast. Right in the middle of talking about wisdom, the advertising algorithm served up an ad for Indiana sports betting. But as a hospital chaplain who sees the implications of the virus directly and indirectly, I was once again grateful for your way of taking on things that matter to us in a news headline urgent sense and helping us find the deeply important side. John, <laughs> thank you for your letter. And I will let you know that that is the advertising algorithm at work and yet also you deciding to reach out to us also helps to make the algorithm wiser. I should hope if algorithms can be wise or at least the people inputting a little smarter about what they're going to be sharing with all of you and hopefully not things that are nearly as <laughs> on the nose in that way as possible. Send us an email podcast at Christianity We are so grateful for, all of you listeners, regardless of whether you agree with us or not, thank you so much for continuing to listen to the show and letting us know how you're feeling about things. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. It's where we invite everyone to share with us something that has recently brought them joy. Over to you, Ted.
2: I'm going to repeat my last week's because it brought me that much joy, Morgan. Uh, last week I had my college reunion, 25th anniversary reunion. And, uh, I think we
1: recorded right before you went to it. So I,
2: we, I was on my way out the door to it. Indeed, joy was looking forward to it. I think it was, in fact, joyful. You know, it's just wonderful to be around people who a knew you back and uh, knew you back in the day, right? And like you can catch up, and you know, it's funny asking people like, "Hey, how you been?" And you're like, "Uh, you want me to give you a quick average of the last twenty five years? Uh, I think I'll just start with fine." You know, there's a certain camaraderie when you're with now Wheaton College, you know, in the 90s. I don't want to over exaggerate that it's, you know, a monoculture, but look, like we're the same age, we're going through the same stuff. We're Wheaton grads who enjoy talking about, you know, theology and big issues. A lot of folks are in, are either professors or in ministry or that kind of thing. Like there's just an immediate camaraderie for talking, you know, which most of us are from, you know, the upper Midwest or that kind of thing. <laughs> It was just, there was a certain kind of like, we just picked it up for after 25 years. You could just kind of start picking up the conversation. Even folks I didn't really know that well back when I was in college, if they're coming back to a college reunion 25 years later. And there was this bittersweet aspect, right? Where it's like, you kind of go to your reunions if things are not going horribly, you know, like, you know, my friends who are divorced or my friends who have been struggling with the faith or yeah, you know, some of those folks were not were not there. Actually, very few people were there because it tended to be locals because of you know COVID. It was so great to see people. It was just you know I, I mean that's uh, like the biggest you know cliche that people say after a reunion. It was honestly good to see people. I am on Twitter. I'm at uh, Ted Olson. Uh, that's Olson with an E. Uh, Morgan, how about you? Actually, I'm going to talk about
1: my trip some more because that was actually, there were lots of awesome things that happened there. One thing things that I did while I was there was I went to the Sistine Chapel. What I was really surprised about, so first of all, I highly recommend if you go to the Vatican, you know, you can either go on the tour or do an audio guide. Do not do, just don't walk through it. It's definitely not worth it to walk through it. But when I was in the Sistine Chapel, they had, you know, our, our audio guide tour guide, whatever was describing all the different art that you see on there. And then Ted, believe it or not, they like actually just started talking about like how much of the gospel message is portrayed on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and how it really portrays God's love for us and God's love for humanity. On the one hand, should I have been that shocked? I'm literally at the Vatican, but on the other hand, they had kind of taken an art history approach throughout the entire tour up until that point. And I didn't expect such a really robust Christian message as they were talking about Michelangelo's work. So that was really moving to be there. I love that, you know, like, I don't know. I don't really want to look at tons of art that portrays tons of religious symbols only through a secular art history lens, right? Especially when we know that Michelangelo had such a robust faith and that he communicated so intensely in the space that I'm in. And I'm glad that they did not leave there or did not check their faith there. Also, the Vatican is very beautiful. I did have some questions about how the popes were spending their money for so long. There was a whole Egyptian museum section that was questionable about if that was the best place for the church to spend their money and other questions I had while I was going through that. But at least the Sistine Chapel was very, to use another word, redemptive for me in that way. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Mary Beth, over to you.
3: Well, I'm actually on the road too, you know, traveling because my husband and I earlier in the week on Tuesday were at Lincoln Christian University, so central Illinois. And we delivered what they call the Strauss Lectures, which is a worldview lectures that was set up in honor of one of their former philosophy professors, longtime philosophy professor there. And we were given the opportunity to deliver the lectures as a couple. And it was actually the first time that they had invited a couple over the 25-year history of the lectureship. And so it was so special, first of all, to be able to prepare the lectures, it was a series of three lectures over the course of the day, to work together to try to figure out our theme and what were our unique com- contributions to that, what would be the division of labor. We love to collaborate Just in general, the book that was mentioned earlier in the introduction to me, The Morals of the Story, um, actually was a collaboration between my husband and I. And so it was come Monday, we were getting ready to leave and we find out our flights canceled and we were offered an alternative, but it wasn't until the next day. And so we we did not know what to do. And, And after some prayer and some craziness, I suppose, except it has worked out in the end, we decided to drive. But it has been... Such a special, special, special week. We could not have asked for a better trip. It has just been such a blessing. And so that's my joy this week is, is that and, and just so grateful for the ways that God works.
1: And where can people find you online?
3: I am on Twitter, MBG. So Mary Beth and then Davis is my maiden name. So MBG Baggett. That
1: is it for us this week thank you everyone for listening to this episode of quick to listen this podcast is produced by myself and matt lindor the music is by sweeps and the transcript is done by faith and Novu if you have comments complaints i somehow feel like we'll get one letter from someone who said i didn't couldn't even listen to this week's episode because i don't even watch the show well you only would be listening to this part right here so you wouldn't know anyway we still like getting mail from you so send us how you feel at podcast at christianitytoday.com. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you all next week. Bye.